0: So our primary scripture passage for this morning is really short. It's three verses, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. And I'm going to ask that you read it with me out loud. I have to tell you, I am really excited about these three verses of scripture. This series that we've been in that's talking about uh, how we are healthy on the inside has been leading to this particular message, this particular Sunday. This is the high watermark of this particular series, And you'll come to figure out why in in a couple of minutes. But our our theme today is practicing Christ's esteem, which is an unusual concept, but I, I think you'll see where it comes from. Let's read this together, if you dare do this with me out loud. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive us, the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray for a minute. Oh God, you who created the heavens and the earth and all that we see, thank you for communicating to us in such a beautiful fashion and telling us that. We are people whom you love greatly. We long for everyone that we know to experience this overwhelming love of God. And I pray that today as we look into these simple but powerful truths of Scripture that you will allow them to be applied to our minds and the way that we look at life and the way that we go out of here and into the world today and tomorrow and throughout this week that we would come to see ourselves in a whole new light and we would be able to look at who we are the lives that we have the privilege that we have through the lens of the way that you see us i pray that you'd strip away the wrong ideas the false ideas the lies of the age that tell us that we don't matter or that we don't measure up or that we're really not that important to you. God, you know the needs that we have deep in our own souls. You you know where we're vulnerable. You know where we're afraid. You know where we doubt. You know where we allow the truths that we've learned from your word that get displaced by all the trivia and the trends of the times within which we live. And I pray that you would give us the ability to see with far greater clarity this morning the marvelous plan that you have and the role that you have for each of us in it and the expansiveness of your extravagant love. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear over the next few minutes. Allow us to turn off all of the other inputs that we've had, to set aside all of the other stuff that screams for attention in our minds. And for the next few minutes, to be caught up in the wonder and the mystery of what you say about your children. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Can you imagine what it would be like to have some traumatic event happen in your life where suddenly you lost all memory and all knowledge of who you are? Your identity was gone. You couldn't remember any of your history. Your name was taken away from you. And you had no idea of who you'd been up to where you are right now. At 5 a.m. on August 31st, 2004, the employees of a Burger King in Richmond Hill, Georgia, were starting their day by taking out the previous night's trash to the trash bins out behind the restaurant. A female employee let out a deafening scream when she stepped behind that trash bin and she found the body of a man lying there, beaten, unconscious, bloodied, stripped down to his underwear, and covered with ant bites all over his body. But he was alive. Authorities were called. The medical folks found three large depressions in his skull that were signs of being hit with some kind of blunt force trauma. Three weeks later, the man woke up from his coma with absolutely no memory. No memory of who he was, his past, his name, or how he had come to this awful situation, or even why he was in that location. He had no identification papers with him. So while the professionals treated him, treating him were glad that he was alive and responding, they were also absolutely stumped by his lack of identity. The FBI was called in. And in this particular case, They had him on the most wanted list even though he'd done no crime and they had no name for him and they had his face uh, plastered in post office uh, centers and all over the country trying to figure out who is this Burger King man who was found next to the dumpster. Not only did the FBI get involved, but eventually uh, he began to recover some little bits of information He told people that he thought that his name was Benjamin. And after a while, Benjamin needed a last name and nothing was coming back. So he took the initials of the place where he was found, Burger King, and chose those initials to be his own and he became Benjamin Kyle. Imagine being so destitute that you've got to take your own initials for a new name from Burger King. This is pretty bad off. True story. Dr. Phil did an entire episode about him on his TV show, and his face again was shown all around the country, this time on national television, and they were hoping that somebody would recognize this man, that they would see him, they would hear some of his story and say, I know this guy, I lived in the same town, or I worked in the same business, or maybe I'm family, he's uncle whoever. And none of that happened. In the years that followed, he was homeless for a period of time, At other times, he lived in shelters. Without a full identity, he found it very difficult to get work. He had no social security number, and he couldn't apply for one because he didn't have a legal name that he was known by. So the little bit of work that he got, he had to work under the table with manual labor jobs that people would give him at a day rate. And this went on for 11, almost 12 years. No memory, no past, nobody who would stand up and say, I know who you are. Finally, in September of 2015, 11 years after he was found behind that Burger King, some genetic detective work kicked in, work that had been going on for years, and it led to the recovery of his real name. He is not Benjamin, he's not Kyle, has nothing to do with Burger King. His real name is William Burgess Powell. And while he was reunited with some of his family members, those missing years of his history are still profoundly lost. Get the picture? True story. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church in California, described that very story, and then he asked this question. Can you imagine what it would be like if some traumatic event happened and you woke up and your identity had been taken from you? Your name, your family, your history, and your identity was all gone And then Rick goes on to reveal the point of using a story like that. He says, that is exactly what Satan, God's sworn enemy, is trying to do with every Christ follower to you. You're not aware of it. You may think I'm nuts for talking about God's sworn enemy, but the Bible tells us that he has an enemy and that the entire history of what God is doing with people takes place within this realm of a cosmic battle there are actually parts of the Bible that take us back before Genesis, before Adam and Eve, before all of that to say there was warfare in the kingdom of heaven. And that there were some who are of the angelic forces who rebelled from God and that they are opposed to God forevermore. And that that battle rages all around us. Our human life is actually all developed and all played out within the context of something that's much older than we are. Satan also has no power over God. God creates, but Satan never creates anything. But there are three things that he does. He manages to pervert things that are good, to destroy some things that are good, or to distort things that are good. That's all he ever does. He perverts, he distorts, he destroys. Think of it this way. If you wanted to hurt God, how do you hurt the one person who's all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, omnipresent, can be anywhere. How do you hurt somebody like that? I know this. If you wanted to hurt me, there's one very easy way to do it. You'd go after my kids or you'd go after my wife. There's a lot that I could take, but if you went after my kids, I would feel it deeply. If you went after my wife, I would feel it very, very deeply. Imagine if you flip that around, what's the best way that somebody could hurt you? It's usually going after somebody who is your child or who is your spouse or somebody who matters very deeply to you. Bring this back to God. God has a sworn enemy. The easiest way for somebody to try and hurt God is to go after God's children. And that's the way the Bible describes everybody who's a Christ follower, that we are children of God, that we belong to his family. And so the evil one has a plan. And and part of what he wants to do, being somebody who never creates anything, he only makes some things that are really good worse, is he wants to work in your life and in my life, and there are some truths about who we are and and about the way that God sees us that he wants to either uh, distort, pervert, or destroy. So you might ask, okay, how does Satan do that? Satan's greatest tactic is trying to distort your identity in Christ And he uses, very often, the opinions of other people to do that. They're not even aware that it's happening, but that's what he does. Think of this. We all have something in common. There are some things that your parents have said about you somewhere in life. There are some things that your peers have said about you. There are some things that your partners in business or in some venture you're involved in have said about you. There are some things that your enemies have said about you somewhere in life. Some of them are true, and some of them are incredibly untrue. Has anybody ever said anything about you that you knew fundamentally was wrong? You know, the kind of whispers where they say, you can't do that. You don't have the skills and the talent for that. You you won't measure up that way. You're not as smart as you think you are. You'll never make it. I've been doing this long enough. I know when the room gets this quiet, you all know exactly what I'm talking about because there's somebody who has whispered those kinds of things into your life at some point in the past. And it's never God. It's always the one who wants to take away from you, not the one who wants to add to your life. All of these people, in one way or another, were trying to mold you into the image that they had for you in life. Satan uses the opinions of other people to control you, to keep you down, and most of all, to keep you from your true identity. And he uses a number of things. Sometimes it's the opinions of other people. Sometimes it's the pain in your life. Sometimes it's the hurt in your life to keep you from your true identity. Sometimes he takes things that are really good in life Like the media. The media is neutral. The media can communicate things that are tremendously good. And the media can also put out a whole lot of stuff that is just distorted and a bizarre reality. Or something like our culture. Culture is meant to be good, but culture can also be a destructive force in somebody else's hands. And the evil one uses all of these forces to knock us off our thinking, to knock us off our understanding, and toward one very specific eternal goal. He does not want anybody in this room to believe that you are fundamentally a child of God who is deeply loved by God, who matters to God, and who is useful in terms of the way that God wants to flesh out his kingdom and expand it throughout the world. These are the lies that we very often Allow to infiltrate our lives. And the evil one is very, very good at doing this. Sometimes Satan whispers thoughts into your mind. When God whispers a thought and puts it in your mind, you know what we call that? Rick Warren would say we call that inspiration. When the evil one plants an idea in your mind through somebody else or through some event that happened in your life, We call that temptation. And there's a huge difference between inspiration and temptation, but they're both just ideas that are whispered into the brain. You've experienced both, right? Times when God gives you this really great idea or this really great thought that you can build on, and there are other times when there are temptations that come into your life that move you completely off track and waste an awful lot of your time, and and you wake up three years later and say, how did I get here? This is not where I want to be. This is not who I am. And so the evil one wants to rob you from your true identity and to distort that identity. And so he suggests things like this. You have to earn God's acceptance to be loved or liked by him. You don't really matter. You're not that important. Here's one of his favorite ones. You can never be forgiven for that. And so even though you believe in Christ, there's some aspect of your junk that you carry around forever. Or you should feel really shameful about this part of your life. You know that God never deals in shame? The evil one is the one who deals in shame. God uses the broken things in our lives and said, I can heal you from that. If you give it to me, I'll even use it as a platform for ministry. I'll make a story that's so great out of that mess that you're in, if you give it to me, that it'll astound the world. The evil one uses that same body of information and says, I'm going to drive you down, I'm going to lock you in shame, show you are completely immobilized for the rest of your life if I can do it. Then Rick adds this one thought. The number one strategy of the evil one is to get you To repeat his lies let me say that again the number one strategy of god's sworn enemy that the bible sometimes calls the devil sometimes called satan that we're tempted to believe doesn't really exist and who operates in secret is to get you to repeat his lies here's why that's a really great strategy when you and i start repeating the lies that have been whispered through somebody else that come from the evil one and we tell ourselves those same lies he doesn't have to do any work anymore He can move on to the next person because all inside of here, we're doing his work by repeating the same lies and keeping ourselves trapped. You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody ever have that happen? I know it has. It's happened with me. It's happened with you. It happens over and over. And he's unbelievably good at the work of perverting, distorting, and destroying. Why do we believe these lies? I think there's one very profound reason, and it's because acceptance is a big deal to us. Acceptance is important. Can you think of some of the things that you once did just in order to be accepted or to fit in or to belong? Truth is, we will all do a whole lot of crazy things just in order to feel like we fit in, that we're accepted, that we belong. Uh, Let me illustrate a, a few of those things from my life, you can laugh at me, okay? Uh, three pictures we're going to show you. Here's the first one. This is from 1973. This is the Outwater family. I'm the guy standing in the back. And I was 14 years old. I just got my hair cut because it was a family picture. So it had to get off the shoulders and come up a little bit. And somehow in 1973, we thought that wearing this really loud striped jacket with the bowl cut hair that was off the shoulders looked really good. All right, here's the second one. In 1981, show the next picture, there we go, uh, somebody had this idea that these bold plaid pants looked really good. Every time I throw this up on a Facebook page as a throwback Thursday kind of thing, I get all kinds of calls like, I want those pants, those are hilarious, dude, where'd you find those things? I had some high school kids this morning saying, you've got to find me pants like those. <laughs> oh gosh. Here's one more. Some people will even jump out of a plane because their buddy did it three minutes before they did. (laughs) All this is to illustrate how far we will sometimes go to fit in, to be included, to be part of a group or to be accepted. Which leads to the need that I want to expose this morning. We need to have a very firm grip on who we are in Christ in order to become who we are supposed to be. Let me say that again. We need to have an incredibly clear grip on who we are in Christ for your life to work out the way that it's supposed to work out, for you to become who you are supposed to be, who you are designed to be. Here's the big idea for this morning. When you see yourself as God sees you, you will find your true identity in Christ and become the person God intends you to be. You'll become the person that God originally designed you to be, and it's an awful thing to walk through life not knowing who you really are. And one of my deepest convictions is, we have an enemy who likes to knock Christ followers off the game so that you are absolutely confused and you do not know who you are. I'm gonna assume this morning that most of this room is filled with people who already believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as the Messiah who's coming back one day. I know that's probably not 100% true, but it's mostly true in this room. The reason I'm gonna do that is because that's the audience that Paul is writing this letter of Colossians to. He's writing to a church now, who might fit within that group? There are some who are, are brand new to faith and, and they're just barely kicking the tires and, and they've, they've just started this, this journey into faith and that's wonderful. There are others that are a little bit farther down the road and, and, and they know that they're believers and, and uh, they're growing in that faith but they know they've got a long way to go in order to understand more. There are some others who are coming back. And there have been some people in both services this morning who haven't been in a church in a long, long time. You, you know that this message is true. You, you know that Jesus is Lord. But somehow you found yourself wandering away. You just took a little vacation and all of a sudden it's 7, 10 years later and you realize that God is like nowhere in your life in terms of practical experience. And just getting here today was a huge risk. And then there are some others in, in the group where you've been in a long, long walk with God. And you love being reminded of his truths day in and day out. And what you're going to see is this message applies across the board to every single one of us. We're going to talk about two things. First, three foundations of a Christian identity. Here's the first. You have been raised with Christ. I want you to say that with me. I have been raised with Christ. Say it in the first person. I have been raised with Christ. What on earth does that mean? Where does that come from? First uh, 1, a little bit before what we just read a moment ago, says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Positionally, every person who has put his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ has been raised with Christ in the way that God sees you. In other words, you're not the person that you once were. You're living the new life. You're living the resurrected life now. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and in some way, shape, or form is infusing you with whatever hope you have and whatever strength you have in the Lord. So Paul tells us to set our hearts and our minds on things above so that we can really lean into this and not to be distracted by the lusts and lures and short-term attractions of this passing world. If you are a Christ follower, you can mean what we just said. I have been raised with Christ. You are meant to live an empowered, full, victorious life, not a defeated life. So don't settle for the lies of the evil one when he tells you that you really don't matter. Don't settle for the lies that tell you that you can't live a life that's marked by the power of God and that tomorrow can't be better than today because that's not from God, okay? Here's the first foundation. You have been raised with Christ. Here's the second part of that foundation. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. One of the evil one's lies is that there is this great gap between Jesus and Christ's followers. We know that today he is at the right hand of God in heaven and that he has instant access to the Father. And so we think, well, he's not here. He doesn't know what it's like here today. He's far, far away. But actually, Jesus is able to be here through the ministrations of the Holy Spirit. It's why he has sent the Holy Spirit which means that the only gap between us and Jesus is about three inches. It's about the size of your brain because that's where the gap takes place in our perception of where Jesus is. Oh yeah, whatever the kingdom of heaven is like, he's there and he'll return bodily one day. But he is able to be present with you at any time through the ministrations of the Holy Spirit, which means that the only gap between us and Jesus is in our understanding and in the convictions that we have. He is able to minister to you, to walk with you, to befriend you, to give you hope, to give you strength at any time, at any minute, on any particular day for the rest of your life. Now Paul adds this thought. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The New Testament uses a phrase over and over in Christ to describe who we are more than 140 times. And it is used to describe God's family. The word Christian that we use very often is only used two or three times in the entire Bible. And now we see this new variation. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does this mean? While you and I don't see Jesus today physically because he is with God the Father wherever that is in the heavens, you are nonetheless represented by Jesus every single day before the very throne of God. And you belong to Jesus so much that in God's view, you are hidden with him. And so when God sees Jesus, he sees everybody who's tied to him, everybody who belongs to him all of his children, all that are wrapped up in the grace of Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden with him. And one day, the third part of this foundation will come true. One day, all this will be clearly seen. So verse 4 of Colossians 3 adds one more thought, part of the foundation. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is saying that our great hope is that Jesus is coming back one day. And when he appears, every true child of God will appear with him. You will not be left out. You will not be forgotten. You will see the glory of God. And part of the glory of God is that you will appear with Jesus because your life is hidden in him. That's how closely we are tied to Jesus. This is our foundation of Christian identity. You've been raised with Christ and therefore the resurrection power is available to us today. Your life is hidden with Christ in God's eyes. When he sees Jesus, he sees you. And one day all of this will be clearly seen, which is our great hope for the future. Now, on that foundation, I want to give to you a threefold description of Christ's esteem. How are we meant to see ourselves Christ's esteem is not something that we work to achieve. It is not something that we get by reading books or some new fad or some new technique. It is based on trusting what God says about you. And so there are three things that God says about every Christ follower in, in Colossians 3, 12. Here's the first one. You are chosen. Verse 12 says, therefore, as God's chosen people, together we have been chosen by God just as Israel was earlier described as God's chosen people so now every Christ follower too is chosen by God Ephesians 1:4 actually goes to such lengths that it says that we were chosen in him in Christ before the foundation of the world wow think about that for a minute before the foundation of the world how much does your life matter to God Before the sun, the moon, and the stars were put into the place where we see them today, you were chosen in Christ as a child of God. Before the oceans with all of their force and their power that can destroy buildings in the midst of a hurricane or that can absolutely take away your breath on a summer day when you're on the beach, before they were set in place and their borders were fixed, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's how much you matter to God. That you were on his mind before all the splendor of everything we see around us had the full attention of God. You think your life's an accident. The scriptural perspective of this would be so much the opposite. This isn't about self-promotion. This isn't about self-improvement. Your identity in Christ starts with knowing that you are chosen. And do you know why this matters? We all have this deep fundamental need to be accepted. Think back when you were a child on the playground. You know what the biggest fear of every kid was? When they would break out for the games and the teams would be divided. Nobody wants to be the last one chosen or the one who's left that nobody wants where the teacher says, well, you've got to be on this team because everybody has to fit into a team. No hands, but have you ever experienced... One of those days? Some some of us have. Most of us have at some point. We want to be accepted. We want to be chosen. And so here in the arena where it actually matters most, where it's eternal rather than extremely short-term, I want you to know something. You have been chosen by God. No matter what theological system we try to fit that within, there's one common denominator whether we think that God chose a class of people all at once or whether he chooses us one by one, the common denominator is we discover who fits into that realm whenever we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We think it's all about our decision and how we respond, but as soon as we respond, we go through the door and we find that there's a placard on the other side of the door that says, chosen before the foundation of the world, which is pretty cool. Gives you every reason to put your faith in him. Here's the second part of Christ's esteem. You are holy. So we go back to verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy. Hmm. You know, there are many people who recoil from this concept of holiness. Mostly, this is because we have wrong ideas about the concept. When we hear the word holy, we think that we have to make ourselves perfect before God. That's what most religions are based on, that you're going to do this and do that, you're going to keep the code, you're going to make yourself better, you're going to pull yourself up, and doggone it, I'm going to make myself presentable to God. And perfectionism leads to an unhealthy kind of religiosity where we try to perform in order to be accepted. Accepted. This is one of the lies of the evil one, one of his most brilliant lies, that you have to earn your acceptance by God. In the Bible, to be holy actually has a different primary meaning. It means to be set apart. Not set apart from, as if we're better than other people and therefore we shouldn't have any contact with them because they might pollute us. That's what the Pharisees did, right? No, we are set apart for his purpose for his service to be used and sent by god so in the old testament the temple and several items that were in the temple were dedicated and then set apart as holy unto god meaning they were reserved for his use his primary use and that meant that god had a purpose for these things and that their highest and best use was when god had them in his hands let me give you a a living illustration of how this applies to us today who, who, had, who here participated in some way in this home makeover thing that's going on at the homeless shelter in Norwell? Just a raise your hands. I'm going to ask you if you'd do something for a minute. If you were Johnny and some others, would you stand for a minute and just stay standing if you were part of this? I'm not going to applaud. I'm not going to embarrass you. That's not, a, that's not the point. But if you would. And, and there were somewhere, I don't know, 12 or 15 in the first service and there were probably some that are working. Just stay standing for a minute. So what this means is that all of you who served on this weekend on this home makeover project, you have been a living demonstration of what it means to be holy and set apart for God's service. Some of you are newer to our church, some of you have been around for an awful long time. But in some way, shape, or form, you felt the tap of God on your shoulder saying, you can do this. You have some time, you can take on a part of this project. And you are being used by something that's gonna be talked about among a number of people in our community. You are, you are serving God, you are doing his work, which means that in some way, shape, or form, you also said, I will set myself apart for this time to be used by God in this way. Does that make sense to you? All right, you can sit out. Thank you very much. And by the way, thank you for being involved in all that. Any time that any one of us senses that tap that God is saying, I think I'm supposed to be involved in this. I think I'm supposed to to step forward. What God does is he sets you apart for his service. It's not about how good you are, how perfect you are, how pleasant you are, uh, how knowledgeable you are. He can use you as you are. And when we give ourselves to him in this way, even for a short time, he sets us apart to do amazing things through us. And in that sense... You are set apart for him. Now you might be saying, wait a minute. Isn't there an element of perfection in this concept of holiness? Yes, but it's not about you and me perfecting ourselves. God is the one who perfects us through the cleansing work of Jesus and through the ministrations of the Holy Spirit. But even then, it's not like you are holy and thus you need to be set aside on a shelf where nobody can touch you or corrupt you or stain you, it means that positionally we are declared to be holy unto God by his act of declaration. Progressively, we are being made holy as we live out our faith by obeying his commands and living up to the positional recognition that he already speaks over us. This is called the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 4.1 with these words. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Break that down for a minute. Have received is what tense? Past tense. It's saying you live a life worthy, present tense, knowing what you have already received. The calling that you've received. In New Testament language, this phrase that reads in English, live a life, is one word in the Greek language, peripateo. It means to walk around. So it means that Christian life is a process of walking it out, and in the course of doing life, God begins to make us more and more like Jesus, makes us more and more holy. I want you to do something with me. I want you to do it right now. Would you stand up, and I want you to walk around? Uh, I'm, I just want to drill this into your head. We're just going to walk. Go ahead, walk around. Get out of your chair. You got to move. You got to walk. You got to walk around. All right. So here's what's cool about this. While we are walking around with all the noise and all the confusion of life, every time that you are putting your faith into practice, every time, despite all the words that are said, all the other noises that called you, just like right now, he is little by little molding you into the image of Christ. And the more and the more, the more and more that we walk out our faith, you and I are being reshaped. And we are being changed And he is progressively making us more and more like Jesus. It doesn't come from just reading books. It doesn't come from having butts in chairs on a Sunday morning. It comes from living the life of a Christ follower. It's why people call this a Christian walk, if you've ever heard that, in churchy terms. And when somebody comes to you and and they say, how's your walk? They are asking, how are you living out your faith? How is that process going? Are you seeing growth? Are you seeing change? Are you seeing the evidence of God's hand? Are we living into that calling and up to that calling that he gives first? It's never to earn the calling of God. Right? You with me? Okay. How do we we take the third step in this? The third part of Christ's esteem is knowing that you are Are dearly loved. Verse twelve, if we tease it out just a little bit more, says, Therefore is God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Okay, here's the best part of this entire message, of this entire discovery that we're making here this morning. You don't have to do anything ever to earn the love of God. Do you believe that? This verse says that you are loved. Better than that, it says that you are dearly loved. And this is always, always true, even when you do not feel it or experience the love of God. In fact, there is nothing that you can do to make yourself not loved by God. And some of us in this room have tried really, really hard (laughs) to give God a reason not to love us. And you have failed miserably, every single one of you, and me too. There will never be a day when you are not loved by God. That does not mean that you will always feel or experience the love of God. Let me explain why. Our experience of the love of God is subjective and it is dependent on spending time with God. Ever have any gaps in your life as a Christ follower in terms of how much time you spend with God? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. How do we do this? How do we spend time with God? Let me give you three quick reminders. One is in prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. There are different kinds of prayer. Sometimes we do individual prayer. Sometimes we do group prayer. Uh, Some people are intercessory prayers and they can go down deep and pray for many, many things and plead with God. Sometimes we do these conversational prayers with God where it's just a constant whisper all day long in every quiet spot and every little break throughout the day we keep coming back to it. But he wants you to pray. He wants you to talk to him. You cannot grow close to him. You cannot experience greater measures of his love if you're not talking to God. Do you need help in praying more? Come to some of these prayer nights. Last Wednesday night, we had another North River prayer night. And there are people in that group who don't find praying easy. We, We did it all in an hour. We just had a few worship songs and we prayed. And boom, it's over like that. Why? Because we're doing it in a group. It's guided. You're involved and we keep it moving. If you want to experience something like that, tonight there's one of the regional prayer gatherings. It's called the Glory of God for the South Shore. And tonight it's meeting at Faith Community Church in Plymouth, which is the old United Methodist Church on the old Route 44, I think that's Carver Road, uh, but six o'clock tonight, there'll be 250, 300 people gathering together from about 20, 25 churches around the South Shore, we're just one of them. And you'll be amazed uh, how fast it it goes. And, And you can pray with other people and that helps. Here's a second way, by diving into his word, the Bible. When you read the Bible, don't just read Read and ask God to show you what He wants you to see. How He might speak to you through the Bible. Read and ask questions. Ask what it meant to the original audience, as best you can figure out. And then read and ask, how does that same meaning to the original audience apply to our situation today? That's a faithful handling of Scripture. Here's a third way. In worship. If you have developed This really robust habit of worship, all on your own, great, more power to you. Most of you do not have that, and you do not have the discipline really to worship God, nor do I all on my own in a way that is truly soul-satisfying. That's why we need to gather together with others like us on a morning like this so that in the context of a large group, we begin to explore worship. And some of you are brand new, and, and all this is a little bit Weird, let's face it. You're not used to singing praises to somebody, but you're discovering the more that you do, the more something grows within you. Some of us need that discipline because our world is not like praise and worship during the week, but we need to come together and do that. And we find that we grow when we do that. But think about this. Some of us desperately want to feel the love of God profoundly but rarely show up for worship. And if there is that desire within us to profoundly know the love of God, we need to change that habit because one of the ways that we're really going to experience God is as we are together, worshiping Him and praising His name. All right, what's the result of all this? I'm going to cut to the chase. The more we rely on the declarations of Christ's esteem, how God sees us and what God says about us, the more we are able to live out the expectations of those who are highly esteemed by God. So here's what he calls us to do. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's us, right? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together. It is from the outflow of knowing who we are in the Christ esteem of God that we're able to do all these things that God challenges us us to do. And the more that we act like those who are highly esteemed by God, the more the church becomes a place of grace and acceptance for everyone. If you struggle with self-esteem, I don't want you to buy any book. I don't want you to go to any seminar. I want you to do one thing that I've urged hundreds of people to do over the last 20 years or so. Memorize the opening part of Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, what would happen if you started off tomorrow morning, and every morning after that, getting up out of bed and starting your day before all of the noise of our culture rushes in at you by saying, I know three things that are fundamentally true about who I am and how I will go about this day, that I am chosen by God, that I have been been declared to be holy and set apart for his use, and I am dearly loved by a God who will never, ever stop loving me. And I have news for you. If you were to start every day with those three declarations that are the foundation of Christ's esteem, your life will radically change. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for these wonderful words and for this one absolutely amazing verse that humbles me, inspires me, excites me, and that has the capability of changing our lives. Thank you for being a God who declares things over his people, who does not tell us to fix everything that is broken first, but who makes declarations over his children about how we will be seen for eternity, that we are chosen by you, the creator of all that is good and beautiful and right, and that we are holy unto you, and that you have things that you want us to do, and there are ways that you're going to impact this world through even the most broken of us all. And that despite every reason we give you not to, we are dearly loved by the creator of the universe. I pray that you allow these things to sink so deeply into our minds and our hearts that we are forever changed And that we forever see ourselves as children of God who are sent into a world that needs to hear what we've heard this morning and to know your radical acceptance. In Jesus' name, send us there. Amen.
1: Amen. Hey, you don't mind if I interrupt for a second, do you? I knew
0: you were going to do this.
1: (laughs) So the big guy had a birthday yesterday, turned 60 years old. Six. So, Paul, they make chairs for people who turn 60. It's called a wheelchair, so why don't you have a seat here? <laughs> chair of honor. How's that fit? Is that, oh, Hello? look at that. <laughs> How's your hip? Is it okay? Your turn will come, Todd. Your turn will come. <laughs> well, don't get too comfortable in that chair. Um, Paul tells us in Philippians that we forget what is behind, and we press on towards the goal that God has called us heavenward. And that call is for you. Um, You're not in heaven yet. You're not dead. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So that means you have a lot more to do. You are our pastor. We love you. And I want to wish you a great and wonderful birthday. Happy birthday. Can we sing happy birthday? Happy birthday to you. Happy (laughs) Happy birthday. There's a card and cake that we're all gonna get to celebrate and eat and partake uh, at the end of the service.